What do some whiny disciples, a wedding, a worn garment, and wineskins have in common? Kind of sounds like a, a bad joke, but it's a, a legitimate question. Based on our text today, we're, we're going to look at Matthew 9, 14 to 17. And uh, you could open your Bible there if, if you haven't already. This is one of those passages that that maybe we'd be tempted to skip over if we weren't going verse by verse through the book. Um, but once we get into it, I think we'll see that there's there's some things to learn here, and it's it's significant to the flow of Matthew's gospel. So let's let's read the text, Matthew nine, fourteen to seventeen. It says this. Then the disciples of John came to him. And actually, you know what? I want to read. Let's, let's start a little bit earlier here. Let's start in verse 9 again. This is what we looked at last week. Matthew 9, starting in verse 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners." Then the disciples of John came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. The question in verse 14 is fairly straightforward. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus' answer in term of the, the wedding or the, the groom is, is easy enough to understand as well. But where things get a little bit more difficult is in the two parables in verse 16 and 17. These are the, the very first parables in Matthew's Gospel and they're, they're somewhat difficult to interpret. The, the picture itself is fairly easy, but, but what is it supposed to mean? What is a new patch represent? What is a new wine or, or a new wineskin? And, and, and what does that mean for it to be preserved? And what does it have to do with fasting? And then we might ask after that, well, what does that have to do with us? What, what, what is this supposed to teach us? And, and, and the question that I was asking at least a lot this week is why of, of all the situations in Jesus's ministry, why did Matthew choose this story to include in the gospel? 
right? He didn't tell us every story about Jesus. He didn't tell us everything that Jesus ever did. He chose certain things, certain miracles, certain sayings, certain interactions, certain encounters. And, and so Matthew put this here on purpose to show us who Jesus is and, and to encourage us to follow Him, which is really what every verse and every section in this, in this larger section, Matthew 8 and 9, has been kind of pointing us to Jesus and to what it means to follow Him. And so Matthew sees something in this story that is significant for his readers. And if it was significant for his readers, then it's significant for us because this is God's Word. Our job is to figure out the meaning, to understand what Matthew wrote and why he wrote it and how we're supposed to respond to it. We know that God doesn't waste words. And so we want to understand what His Word says and what His Word means. And we're to take the meaning of His Word and apply it to the various situations of our lives. There's one meaning, but there's various ways to apply that one meaning. There's, there's multiple significances to us that, that comes out of the one meaning of Scripture. So again, what does the, this whining, wedding, worn garment, and wineskin mean, and what is its significance for us? And we're just going to go through it kind of section by section, and so let's find out. The first section that we're going to look at, it, I called it the whining. Uh, maybe a little bit hard on, uh, on these disciples, but look at verse 14. The disciples of John, you know, it was a little hard on them, but I, I needed a W, so I, you know, so we, uh, we kind of went with that. Uh, the disciples of John came to him saying, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And, you know, to me, that does kind of sound like a bit of a whine. There, there, there's Jesus and his disciples, they're feasting and having a great time. And, and John's disciples are going, well, what am I doing fasting? How come I, how come you guys aren't fasting? You know, I've been fasting, Pharisees fast. Let's, what's up with you guys? Now what we need to note here, I think in the context, is that this is the third criticism of Jesus in the past few verses. It started in verse, uh, in verse three of chapter nine with the scribes, and behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. They thought that Jesus was blaspheming because he told the paralytic, your sins are forgiven. Now, by healing the paralytic, Jesus showed that he wasn't blaspheming and he had the authority to forgive sins. But we notice there that the scribes are are beginning to to complain and criticize Jesus for saying that he was forgiving sins. The next incident where we see some hostility towards Jesus was in verse 11. And this time it was the Pharisees. And so if you look at verse 11 there, when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners. Jesus was, was feasting with Matthew. He had called Matthew to follow him. Matthew's gonna follow him now. And they, and it seems like Matthew throws a, a dinner for his, his friends, tax collectors, and sinners. And the Pharisees say, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And again, it wasn't so much of an honest question as it was a criticism of Jesus' ministry and association with sinners. And then in our text, another group is questioning Jesus. This time, it's the disciples of John. 
Now, John's disciples aren't as hostile as the scribes and the Pharisees, but they're questioning Jesus. And they have not, and I think this is important to note here, they have not become His disciples. They're they're not Jesus' disciples. They're still John's disciples. And so again, this is the third sign of a growing resistance against Jesus and His ministry. Now, this resistance is especially surprising from any of John's disciples. And so I want you to kind of, let's go first to Matthew chapter 4 and verse 12. It says there, now when he, and he there is Jesus, now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And so, Already right now, as, as Matthew chapter 9 is happening, John has already been in jail for at least some amount of time. Now, what had John told his disciples about Jesus? Well, look at chapter 3 and verse 11. John says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand and he will clear his threshing floor and gather his wheat into the, into the barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. And so John told his disciples that, that Jesus was mightier than him, that Jesus would baptize with the Holy Spirit and that he would be the ultimate judge of the world. And so John told Jesus' or John told his disciples that Jesus was much greater than him. And so it's surprising then to find John's disciples not with Jesus, not following Jesus when John himself is in prison. Now let's turn over to the Gospel of John uh, and look at John. We'll start at chapter 1. And I just want to kind of... The Gospel of John gives us a little bit more insight into the ministry of John the Baptist. So let's go over to John chapter 1. And we'll see what else John told his disciples as far as Jesus goes. So let's look at 1 and verse 29. John 1, starting at verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And then in verse 35, the next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. And so John is pointing to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's he's showing his disciples that this Jesus is the one who was promised. John told his disciples to follow Jesus. And again, John was currently in jail, but John's disciples, or at least the ones in our passage, 
They were not following Jesus. They did not follow Jesus. Instead, they came and they, they asked, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, b- before you leave the Gospel of John, just turn over to John 3 and look at verse 25. It says, now a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing, and all are going to him. John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom, The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. And so John saw Jesus as the bridegroom. We're going to kind of unpack that as we go along here. But John saw Jesus as the bridegroom and he was the friend of the bridegroom. He saw Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah. So he recognized who Jesus was and he pointed his disciples to follow after Jesus. John rejoiced that all were going to Jesus because his ministry was to point people to Jesus. But even though John had told everyone to follow Jesus, some of his disciples apparently didn't do so. But one thing they did follow was John's ascetic lifestyle. Um, asceticism is a, a lifestyle of severe self-discipline, often associated with like poverty and, and harshness on the body. Asceticism often involves fasting and other forms of, of seeking to control the body. And, and remember, John wore a garment of camel's hair. That's not luxury clothing. That's not, that's not even comfortable clothing. It's probably a little bit of a, a scratchy kind of a clothing. He wore a leather belt. He Remember, he ate locusts and honey. And so he had apparently taught his disciples to fast. And you know, if honestly, if I was eating locusts and honey, I might fast a couple days a week too, right? Um, although I, I do like fresh honey. But anyways, the, the, um, the disciples of John were, were kind of following this harsh lifestyle on their body. And they were kind of, they were beating their body and, and following him in that way, but they didn't follow Jesus. In Luke 5.33, the parallel passage uh, to ours, it says, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. And I think what I wanted us to note there from Luke 5.33, the disciples of John fast often, it says. And even that word often kind of bleeds into some of the later manuscripts in, from the book of Matthew as well. So the Pharisees, they fasted often. The, the, the disciples of John fasted often. And, and actually, they, they kind of made a practice of fasting every Monday and Thursday from kind of like sundown to sunup, or at least morning till evening on Mondays and Thursdays. And it's likely that John's disciples followed that same practice as well, fasting twice a week. And I can imagine John's disciples maybe on a Monday or a Thursday and they, they're, they're, they're fasting and they see Jesus and his disciples 
feasting with Matthew and the tax collectors and the sinners, and, and, and they have questions about this. Now last week we, we read, our, when we started here, we read Matthew 9. There's this, this, this feast going on. Matthew's providing a feast and uh, the, the tax collectors and sinners are there and they're reclining at table. And so again, in verse 14, the disciples of John came to Jesus. Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Now, perhaps calling that question whining is a little bit harsh. And, and honestly, as I, as I even did that, I, I thought about, I'm gonna, I might, these guys might have got saved. I might meet these guys in heaven and they might say, what about that sermon on, on December 5th, Mike, where you said I was a whiner? I wasn't whining. I was, you know, I was doing whatever. Well, you know, anyways, I thought about it and I, we're gonna stick with whining. Um, it seem, it seems like that's kind of what they're doing. They're not, I don't, I don't think that they're just curious about this thing. Uh, but perhaps they were. Perhaps they were just curious. But anyways, it's a little bit of a whine. Let's see how Jesus responds to this in, in, in verse 15. So this, this we called the wedding. And so Jesus here begins his reply. And he has a, a threefold reply beginning with what he says about the wedding and the bridegroom. And then he illustrates with this parable of the worn garment. And then the third is the illustration of the wineskins. And so this is a, a threefold reply then in the next three points that, that, that answer this question of the, of the disciples of John. The clearest of these is what we have in verse 15, where Jesus says, Jesus said to them, can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So Jesus here refers to himself as the bridegroom or at the very least, he compares himself to a bridegroom. Jesus is like a bridegroom and we just typically call them a groom, but Jesus is like a bridegroom and his disciples are like the guests at the wedding. The ESV there translates it the, the wedding guests. It, it's more literally they're the sons of the wedding hall, which means people who are closely associated with the wedding ceremony. That, that's the idea. These are, these are somehow sons of that when you're a son of something, you're, you're closely associated with it. And so these people are closely associated with the wedding ceremony. And it could be that they're, it refers to the guests, but it's even more likely that these are Attendance of the groom, uh, like like bridesmaids, but for the man. And I think sometimes we call them groomsmen, in uh, at least in Canada, the the groomsmen. So John's John or Jesus's disciples are like the groomsmen. Jesus is the groom. Now, what were the groomsmen supposed to do when their buddy was getting married? And, and we do this even today, right? When, 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 what are, what's the role of the groomsmen? Well, their role was to make sure the celebration went smooth. They were to celebrate with the groom. It was, it was a time to rejoice, to make merry, and to celebrate. Now, and, and of course, the, the feasting of the wedding went on for, for three or four days during, during that time. And so there was, this was a, a massive time of, of celebrations and merrymaking and rejoicing with the, the bridegroom. 
Now, fasting, by contrast, is is associated with mourning. Fasting is to do with grieving. You don't fast at a wedding. A a wedding was a a three- or four-day feast. It's not a fast. And it would be totally inappropriate for the best man at a wedding to not be celebrating with the groom. It would be totally inappropriate for the best man to be fasting while the groom is feasting and celebrating with his friends and celebrating this wedding that's coming up. And so Jesus is saying then, my disciples can't mourn because I am with them. Fasting would be inappropriate and it would be as inappropriate as mourning at a wedding. And so think about it then. What is Jesus saying about the fasting of the Pharisees and John's disciples? He's saying it's inappropriate. It's, it's not the time for fasting. Fasting doesn't fit the time that they're in. They should be celebrating, not mourning, not, not fasting. Now, the, the, the next question that we need to ask is this. What does it mean for Jesus to be the bride, bridegroom? You know, he, he's, not, he's not literally getting married here, right? So what, what is he talking about? He's not getting married. John the Baptist had also called Jesus the bridegroom. And he, he thought of himself as the friend of the bridegroom. John rejoiced to see Jesus increase and to see Jesus' ministry kind of like a, a groomsman would rejoice when his good friend gets married. But still, that doesn't really answer the question, what does it mean for Jesus to be the bridegroom? Well, in the Old Testament, it was God Himself who was the bridegroom, and Israel was the bride. And so the Lord, with the, the capital L-O-R-D, the, the Lord Yahweh, He was the bridegroom in several Old Testament passages. And we'll look at a few of these here. The first one's in Isaiah chapter 54. So I, you could turn to Isaiah 54. And in, in the context of these passages that we're going to look at, and, and really even the the three or four other passages that we're not going to go to today, the, the context is always about salvation. And so Yahweh is the husband, Israel's the bride, and Yahweh is saving His bride. He's saving Israel and, and bringing salvation to His people. Yahweh rescues His bride from the lowly position that she was in and from her sin, and He takes her to be His bride. And so again, if you haven't already, look at Isaiah 54 and verse 5. Isaiah 54, 5 says, Your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. The Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. And so the, the creator, the maker, the, the Lord of hosts, he is the redeemer of Israel. He is the redeemer there and he is the husband to Israel. And Israel is like this deserted wife grieved in spirit and, and Yahweh is going to save his people. He's going to save his bride. So again, if you go now just a few chapters over, go to Isaiah 62. <clears throat> Isaiah 62, start reading at verse 1. 
For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. And for Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. Now notice there, salvation and righteousness. So God's going to say something here. He's, gonna, he's not going to be silent. He's going to say something. And it, it's, it's going to be something that brings about righteousness and salvation. In verse 2, the nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called my delight is in her, and your land married. For the Lord delights in you, and your land shall be married. For as a young man marries a young woman, so shall your sons marry you. And as a bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. And so here again is this this picture of salvation. The the Lord is going to bring salvation to Israel and the nations are going to see the the beauty of this saved Israel that's a, a future thing yet. And not only does he, is he going to do something for Israel, but he also kind of speaks about the land in verse four and five. And so Israel is, is going to be no more termed forsaken. She's going to be called my delight is in her. And the land is going to be called married. So the, the sons are going to marry the land. The, the sons of Israel are going to enjoy the land, but Yahweh is the bridegroom and he rejoices over the bride, over the saved and righteous and transformed Israel. So shall your God rejoice over you. And so we kind of get this picture of Yahweh as the bridegroom and he's, he's taking this desolate and forsaken wife, Israel, and he's going to save her and make her beautiful, a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord. Now we could go to, to more passages, but I think just from those, we get the idea. Yahweh's a husband to Israel and a future day is promised when he's going to save Israel and make her a glorious bride. And so God is the bridegroom and Israel is the bride. But now we come to the New Testament and John and Jesus are calling Jesus the bridegroom. And so this is very significant here. By by claiming to be the bridegroom, Jesus is saying that He is God. He's saying again that He is God. And the New Testament writers they picked up on this picture and they applied it to the church's relationship with Christ. The church is the bride and Christ is the Savior. Christ is the husband of the church. He's the head of the church. He's the bride of the church. He's the head of the church. He's the husband of the church. And He's the Savior of the church in Ephesians 5, 25 and 26. And at the end of time, Scripture speaks of what we call the eschatological banquet the eschatological banquet of the end time banquet. And it's this massive feast for all of God's people from all time. And, and we could think of this as a wedding banquet at the end of time where, where both Israel and the church are, are married to God through the salvation that's in Christ. And, and actually just to kind of show you a little bit this eschatological banquet, go back to Matthew chapter eight. Because we saw this in, in Matthew eight eleven and 12.
So Matthew 8.11 says, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into outer darkness or into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So Jesus said many from the east and west would come, and, and the, the idea there is many Gentiles would would be at this eschatological banquet, and they're going to eat with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and with the Lord Himself. But the sons of the kingdom, Israelites, would be cast out. They wouldn't be at that banquet. Of course, they were expecting to be at that banquet, but they won't be at that banquet because they're rejecting the Messiah. Now, of course, we, we now know that these Gentiles that are going to come are going to be part of the church and that Israel would reject Christ at His first coming and that Christ would gather a new people from every tribe and nation and language and that people is called the church. The church is the bride of Jesus Christ. Now, I don't take all of any of this to mean that the church has replaced Israel. Scripture actually never explicitly says that. God's promises to Israel must be fulfilled to Israel, even if He allows, allows us for the time being to receive some of those same blessings and to receive some of those blessings now. But, but what I really want you to get here is this, that if God is the bridegroom and Jesus is the bridegroom, then Jesus is God. And one day there will be a wedding feast for all of God's people, people from the east and west and people from Israel, Israel and the church. And, and we will be at this eschatological banquet rejoicing with Christ really from that point on and forever. And for Jesus' disciples, to kind of get back into Matthew 9, for Jesus' disciples eating with Matthew and tax collectors and sinner friends... It's a, almost like a foretaste of the kingdom. It's a, a foretaste of the eschatological banquet. God the Son was walking the earth, forgiving sins, healing every sickness among the people, casting out demons, and it was a time for rejoicing and celebrating. It was a foretaste almost of the kingdom-like blessings that were to come. And so it was a time for rejoicing, not a time for fasting. In fact, one of the main reasons that people in Israel would be fasting at that time would have been to see God do the kinds of things that Jesus was doing. And so they would have been fasting and praying for, for something like what Jesus was doing in their midst to happen, and, and now it's happening and they're not acknowledging it and they're continuing to fast. It makes no sense. Fasting and prayer go together. And, and one of the chief things that they would fast and pray for was for the coming of the Messiah. And so in Luke chapter 2 and verse 26, we meet Anna, the widow, who had been a, a widow for all those years, and she was fasting and praying in the temple, and, and she would have been fasting and praying for the coming of Messiah, for the one to, to make right everything that was wrong in the world. And when she saw baby Jesus, her, her fasting and praying turned into thanksgiving. The Jews were longing for the Messiah. And, and now in this context, he was finally there. And it should have been a time for celebration. But these were disciples of John. They were mourning and fasting when the Messiah was right in front of them. And their fasting then shows that they were rejecting the Messiah. They weren't understanding the times. 
And so their religious practice was out of sync with reality. Their religious practice was out of sync with what God was doing at that time. And that's an important principle for us. Their religious practice was out of sync with reality, with what was really happening. They weren't understanding the times. Reality and religious practice should always go together. Otherwise, what you end up with is hypocrisy or just like in the case of the Pharisees here, the disciples of John, it it was an ignorance. Now, maybe it was somewhat of a willing ignorance. They had seen the miracles that Jesus did, but they were ignorant of what was happening. And so their religious practice was out of sync with reality. We'll come back to that thought a little bit later, but let's go back to Matthew 9 and look at verse 15 again. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? And of course, the answer that we're expecting there is no. But then he says, The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now that second part of that verse there is the first hint in the gospel that Jesus would die. That word taken away likely, most likely implies a measure of force. It's, it's veiled there, but it, there, but it's there. And when, when Jesus was taken away, then his disciples would fast. And, and the disciples of Jesus did fast when Jesus had ascended to heaven and, and they were left alone. And, and we covered that. We talked about fasting when we looked at Matthew 6. So Matthew 6, 16 to 18 spoke about fasting, and I, I don't think I'm going to say anything else about fasting here today. But the disciples, through the book of Acts, they fasted. Even in our time now, it's an, it's an appropriate time for fasting and prayer. But when, when, this, when this was spoken, when this happened, it was not an appropriate time for fasting because the Messiah was there. So that was the answer to their question. Jesus answered their question with a question in kind of good Jewish rabbi style. He answered the question with a question and he showed that the, that he is the bridegroom and therefore fasting during his advent would be inappropriate. Jesus will, will now follow up with two parables that speak about mixing the new and the old. And the first one is, this is number three in your outline, the worn garment in verse 16. The worn garment. Look at verse 16. Now, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For the patch tears away from the garment and a worse tear is made. And so here's something unthinkable that no one would do. No one would do this. No one would patch an old worn garment with a new patch made of unshrunk cloth. The first time that the, the, the new, newly patched garment got wet, the, the patch would shrink, making a worse hole in the garment. And so everyone knew that in those days, and nobody would, would do something so foolish. Nobody would try that because first you have to shrink the cotton, first you have to shrink the material, otherwise you're going to just rip your old worn out garment. Now this is a, a parable, and Jesus, you know, he, he hasn't, switched from talking about fasting to um, to talking about how to mend garments, right? I think we all kind of understand that. This isn't about sewing all of a sudden. Jesus didn't just kind of have a, a, a random tangent thought that he's going to talk about something totally unrelated. So this is a, a parable, 
And it, it, a parable, so this is our first time looking at a parable, parables take something from reality, something that's, that's readily understood, like sowing, and then that, that thing that's, that's kind of readily understood in society is then used to describe a spiritual reality. Now this is again, this is the first parable that we've looked at together, and this is the first parable in Matthew's Gospel. And, and honestly, some might not even want to call it a parable. So often parables are, are a little bit longer and there's a little bit more of a story to them, but, but it's, it's a, at least a parable-like illustration at the very least. But whatever we call it, it, it works like a parable. There, there's this element from the natural world fixing old garments, and it's meant to teach us something spiritual, some kind of spiritual truth that Jesus is getting across to the disciples of John. Now, what I like to do when we interpret parables is to stay in the natural realm and just make sure that we get the main point of the story before trying to jump to the spiritual teaching that it's teaching. And if you don't do that, if you don't stay in the natural thing and understand the main point of the illustration, that's where you make mistakes in interpreting if you, if you jump too quickly to the spiritual meaning. So, What's the main point of this little thing in verse 16? Let's, let's summarize it from the sewing realm. We're just going to stick with sewing. Nobody would patch an old worn garment with a new unshrunk patch. Otherwise, you're going to make the tear in the worn garment worse. Nobody would fix the old with the new because they're not suited for each other. See that? The, nobody would fix the old with the new because they're not suited for each other. Now let's go to the next one and then we'll come back and we'll get to the spiritual meaning here. So look at verse 17. This is number four in your outline, the wineskins. The wineskins, verse 17. Jesus says, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins and so both are preserved. Now, this one needs a little bit more explanation. Of course, wine is fermented grape juice, and fermenting would, would normally occur or initially occur in another container, uh, a barrel or, or I don't even know what, but there would be an initial fermenting process, and then the lees would be strained out, so they would strain out the, the little bits of grapes or whatever that was left, any kind of sediment or whatever was in there, that would, that would get strained out. And then after that, the wine would be put into a wineskin. And, and in that wineskin, it would ferment the rest of the way. So there'd be a fermenting and expanding process that happened a little bit in that wineskin. Now, wineskin was made from animal hide, probably a goat. And the goat was killed and then, and then carefully skinned and, and almost like peeled off so that there'd be no nicks in the hide. The legs would be kind of then sewn shut and so that there'd be only one opening usually in the neck. And so from the, the, you know, the heads off and you can pour out the neck and all the, the wine juice would be in this animal skin. Now it would be carefully tanned so that your wine wouldn't taste like a dead goat, right? Um, and so, that's a good thing to have if you uh, if you're making this kind of system. So 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 it would be carefully tanned. Of course, the the hairs on the outside or the hairs been removed because you know nobody wants hairy wine. So um, 
Now, initially, this wineskin would be, would be soft and stretchy. And it would, it, there would be lots of give in the material for the wine to ferment and expand. But over time, the, the leather would harden and get brittle. And it would now be unable to stretch for the fermenting process. And so they would take these older wineskins and they would use them for water or they would eventually be thrown out. But new wine would go into new wineskins. Otherwise, both the wine and the wineskin would be ruined. And so we could maybe summarize this one this way. We might say new wine is not put in old wineskins or else the old would burst and the new wine would spill. And so if again, if the new is mixed with the old, both are destroyed. New has to go with new to preserve both the new wine and the new wineskin. Now here's where it gets a little bit tricky as far as interpreting goes. What is new and what is old? You know, to what is Jesus referring with these illustrations? In, in both mixing new and old, in, 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 sorry, in both parables here, mixing the new and the old wrecks the old. In the first one, the old garment gets a worse hole when it's patched. In the second, the old wineskin burst and the wine is spilled. So what do we make of it? Well, um, I think first we should remember here and we should, and, and an important principle in interpreting parables is you want to stick, stick with the context. Uh, a number of commentators kind of jump to the, and they say the new is the new covenant and the old is the old covenant. And the new covenant and the old covenant, they would say, can't mix. They say the new covenant ministry can't be patched onto the pharisaical forms of the old covenant. In, in other words, Jesus' disciples can't try to, to fit into the legalistic system of the Pharisees or of John's disciples. And I, I think that interpretation, although it ends up being pretty close to my view, I think we should be careful here about bringing in from outside something that's not in the context. Jesus hasn't said anything about the new covenant, and he hasn't said anything about the old covenant in in the context. So let's think about it. Well, what's new in this context? And what I see here is what's new, what's the new thing that's happening is, is that it's Jesus's presence. And with Jesus' presence comes the forgiveness of sins, casting out demons. Everything that Jesus is doing in Israel and Galilee at this point is new. Jesus himself is new. He's brought a new situation. He's the bridegroom, and the presence of the bridegroom has brought a new scene. The Pharisees and John's disciples and, and everything that they and really everything that Israel was doing before Jesus came is old. It's the, it's the old situation. And whatever was happening before the bridegroom came is or, or was in the category of old. So everything that Israel and the Pharisees and John were doing, it really should have changed when Jesus came because the bridegroom was here, the Messiah was here. There's a, a new situation happening. And so the old won't do anymore because the new has come. And so the message is, the Messiah is here, God has come, it's time to recognize the new situation because whatever was happening before is irrelevant. I think it goes too far to make this about a connection between the Mosaic Covenant and the New Covenant. Jesus is simply saying, your old religious duties like fasting don't fit what's happening now. 
I'm the bridegroom, I'm here, this is a new situation, and therefore your old practices like fasting, they would only ruin what is happening. And if you just think about it, if you try to mix mourning and fasting with the joy of having the Messiah here, it would ruin the mourning and it would ruin the joy. The old and the new won't work together. And so this then is a rebuke to John's disciples. They asked, why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And the answer is, you're stuck in your old ways when God is doing something new. That's the answer. Why, why is this the case? Well, because, because you're stuck in your old and you're going to destroy the, the new that God is doing in your life. My disciples, Jesus is saying, have recognized it. You would only make things worse if you tried to add what you are doing to what God is doing. Now the question then is, well, why does Matthew put this here? Why does Matthew include this here? And I think what he wants to do is he wants us to recognize again that Jesus is God and that he, that, that Jesus came to earth to call sinners to repentance, that he came to save his people from their sins and that he came to forgive. Matthew wants us to understand that Jesus' coming changes everything. Because he is the fulfillment of what is written in the law. And I think Matthew also chose this interaction to show us the growing rejection and hostility against Christ. Even John's disciples didn't all follow him. And the more we read in this gospel, the more we're convinced that Jesus is the promised Messiah. But the more we read in this gospel at the same time, the more we see the hardened rejection of Christ as well. And so we're convincingly uh, convinced that Jesus is the Messiah, that He's God in human flesh, that He's come and we see His authority and His power and the, the amazing things that He did in the world and the amazing things that He has said. But at the same time, we see the amazing hostility and rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ as we go through this gospel. He will be in the words of verse 15, taken away from his disciples. Now it's hard to imagine, I don't, I don't know for you, but it's hard to imagine Jesus being killed. It's hard to imagine men killing him. How or, or why would they kill the most loving man who ever lived who had healed the whole country? Well, because he called them to turn away from their sin. Because he challenged them to worship and live for God alone. Men don't like to be told to turn from sin that they love. They don't like to be told that their religious works are meaningless like Jesus told these disciples of John. Men don't want any authority over them other than their own desires, but Jesus has come as one with authority and He calls people to turn away from their sins and to live for the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that with, with that, either you're going to get saved and you're going to come under the authority of Jesus Christ or you're going to get hostile and you're going to fight to retain your own authority. And Matthew is showing us or beginning to show us this, this clash of authority. Men's authority versus the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now with that said, I think it'd be appropriate then to call you to come to Jesus Christ. To submit to His authority to be saved from this perverse generation. You know, we are to turn from our 
sins, but not even just our sins, but even this passage shows us we're even to turn from the religious works that we trust in and put our hope in. The Pharisees and the tax the Pharisees and the, the disciples of John were fasting and hard on their bodies, and they, they thought by that maybe that they were earning their salvation. But Jesus shows us that our religious works and our contribution can be nothing to this whole thing. Jesus alone has the power to save. And so we need to come to Him and turn from our sins and turn from the religious reliance that we have on our works or ourselves or the good things that we think we do. And we need to come to Jesus Christ. Turn to Him. And so I would ask you if you're here today and you haven't trusted in Jesus Christ or if you're hearing this on on the internet or on YouTube or whatever it is, then I would call you to turn from your sins to Jesus Christ. He will forgive your sins give you a new life. He loves to forgive sinners. And so come to Him by faith. If you come to Him, if you come to Him and confess your sins and trust in Him alone for salvation, He will save you from your sins. And He will impart His righteousness to you so that you can be right in God's sight and all your sins can be forgiven and God will look at you and treat you as though you were the righteousness of Christ. Now, the other point of application that I want to make is, is really tied to that principle that we saw in verse 19. You know, our religious practice should be tied to reality. John's disciples were fasting when joy would have been the appropriate response. Now, of course, Jesus isn't with us today. And He's been taken away and He's extended to the right hand of the Father Um, He's with us in spirit, but He's not with us in the flesh. And so fasting is appropriate today. Today is a a day to fast. We know that Jesus has come, but we we also know that He's ascended to heaven and and that He's given us the Spirit. And and so we kind of know what we're to be about in this world as far as saving sinners and reaching them with the gospel and, and helping the saints to grow to be more like Christ. We I think we know that. And that would be a legitimate application. But there's this also this principle that, again, that, that our religious practice, that what we do should be tied to what's going on in the world. That there should be an understanding of the situation that we are in as we serve the Lord in this world. And so, as I kind of thought about what would be some appropriate application, what, what, what is the reality that's happening in our world today? And of course, I think first of all, all hypocrisy based on this principle needs to be out, right? What, what, we're never, we're never to make a show. It's always to be real in our hearts. Christianity needs to be a real thing, a real belief, a real trust in Christ. It, it can never just be something that we do. It's not, we don't just go to church on Sunday because that's what we do on Sunday. We gotta, we go to church because we want to worship God with our hearts and souls. And so that's the, that's kind of maybe phase one of the reality. But I think phase two, and, and I really did wrestle with if I should go here or not, and it, maybe it's a bit of a stretch in the application, but I think we need to recognize increasingly the times that, that we're living in. We are living in, in wicked times, and our response to that should suit what's going on in the world. I, I think it was Martin Luther, he talked about how the, there's always like a particular point of 
in every generation, there's always something that where where we're challenged in the truth. Um, and if we if we cower at that point where the where the actual battle is, then we've kind of given up all. Right? Do you kind of see that? We could, we could preach good gospel messages and we could just kind of do our thing, but if we ignore the battle of our day, then we're, we're kind of useless to the world. And so we need to recognize what's going on in the world right now and we need to respond appropriately to that. Well, what's going on in the world right now? Well, uh, it, as you know, it's a wicked, wicked world. Um, things that we've never really seen in our day, in our time, and even our parents' time are, are happening at, at an increasing rapidity that is coming faster and faster. Uh, I don't know if you know, brethren, but the, the, the government just passed through Bill C-4. Um, Bill C-4 is a, a, a conversion therapy ban where we can't even talk to people if this goes through, it's, it's passed through the, the House of Commons. I think it has to go through the Senate. But the word is that that's going to go through fast. Now, nobody in the, in the government even challenged this bill as it went through. And what does this bill do? I, I didn't get any quotes from it. You can look into it yourself. But it, it, it prohibits anyone from trying to um, stop anyone from acknowledging the gender that they were born in. So if, if you feel like you're a woman, but you're in a man's body, and I try to talk to you and say, that's ridiculous, God made you a woman, or God made you a male, um, I could go to jail for five years just for having a conversation where I try to, just to show you what Scripture says about sexuality and about male and female and, and all of this stuff. And so, um, Bill C4 is, is coming. It's just kind of got announced about mid this week. It has to go through the Senate and get approved, but it seems like that's going to happen. And so what, what some of us pastors are going to do is we're going to, on the, on the first Sunday that that comes about, we're going to all preach together a, a sermon on biblical sexuality, and we're going to kind of make our stand in that level. And that, you know, that could, if, you know, it could, if they want to, it could result in, prison for us. But even for you as parents, if you talk to your children about biblical sexuality, once this bill passes, you could go to jail for five, up to five years. So, um, so that's one thing and and that we need to stand for. The other thing I think that, that we know about is, is the increasing tyranny that's happening in the world and the, the government clamping down on these restrictions that, that aren't really medically based at all. There's no medical reason for vaccine passports or any of these things. What, what, what seems to be, and it seems to be increasingly clear in my mind, is that the government just wants to control every aspect of our lives. And, and they're moving in that direction in, in a rapid pace. They're taking away our restaurants. They're taking away our right to do, to do anything that we should be free to do by our own choice and volition. And, and again, it's, it seems like it has nothing to do with medical. It seems like it has to do with the government trying to control our lives. And so I think the reality for us in a time like this is that, that we need to stand for righteousness and truth. And I just say, like, as your pastor, I actually don't know what we should do. But I know that we need to, to not comply with this government nonsense, that we need to take a stand for righteousness, because if we don't, 
I think pretty soon we're going to recognize that it's too late to do anything. And we're going to be um, in some kind of Christian quarantine camps for the rest of our lives. And so, again, I don't, I don't know. I say, I would say, pray for for me because I, I want to lead you well in this time, and I want to respond in a God honoring way to to the situation that that God has brought our way. Um, and I, I think again, it, it's gonna. The time that we're in is increasingly, it's, it's increasingly evident to me that it, it requires a united stand against the evil that's happening in our country. And I don't know exactly how that should look. Um, but initially, I think it's, it's don't comply. They're, they're gonna take, they're gonna take our money and resources anyways. And so don't worry if they find you or whatever. I think we need to just, fight these things all the way to the end because they're going to they're going to take it anyways if they want it. And so um anyways, our response to what's happening in the world um needs to al- align our 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 religion needs to align with what's happening in the world. And so there's times where I can't just preach through Matthew like normal, but I I need to talk about something that's happening in the world to make a stand against the evil. And so I think, I think that's the, one of the applications from this text is we need to respond in God glorifying ways to what's happening in, in our day. And so pray for, for me. I'd, I'd love to lead you in this thing. And I think pray for the, the men of our church as we, as we go, uh, as we go forward here in these next days. Um, sermon on Bill C4. I just, uh, let me just tell you this. I, as I search my heart and in all my weakness, I feel like I am, I am here to stand as long as I can until they throw me in jail and serve the Lord. And if, if you guys want to stand with us, that would be awesome. So, um, that's what the Lord would have us do right now. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank you for our time together and, Thank you that we can understand the times. Um, thank you that we recognize who you are, that you are our Messiah, our Savior, that you have come, that, that you have risen to the right hand of the Father, that you are coming back and that you would have us to live for righteousness in this world. Father, we just confess that we don't always know how to do that. We, we, we feel like we haven't been trained for, um, fascist, uh, tyrannical takeovers. And so we just pray that you would lead and guide us. Help us to be a righteous light in this time. Help us not to forget the gospel as we, as we take the stand that we do as well. We recognize, Father, that the only hope for this world is salvation through Jesus Christ. And so we pray for that, Lord. We pray that you would save our country, that you would deliver us from the, the judgment of our own rulers and the, the judgment that we see coming. But if not, Father, we just pray that you would help us to stand in the wickedness as, as lights for your gospel and to reach many people with your truth. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.